give that shit up, you can concentrate on golf. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Great moments are born from great opportunity. You play ball like a girl! Hi everybody and welcome to a Roy Orbison Tattoo Podcast with me, Colm, and my co-host, Massey and Paul. This is episode 9 of season 1 and we are talking about Happy Gilmore. If it is your first time listening, I would advise to go back to the start and listen from episode 1 as we will refer to previous shows from time to time. This show does contain film spoilers, so if you have not yet seen the film, I would advise watching it first, it may help understand a little bit better. And now for today's show, I hope you enjoy. So welcome everybody and welcome to Paul and Massey. How are you lads? Good now, Colm, how are you? Good, yeah, good Colm. So tonight we're talking about the film Happy Gilmore. And our coach that we'll be discussing is Mr. Chubbs Peterson. So how did you find the film, lads? Honestly, it didn't do much for me, to be honest with you. Really? Yeah. You know, I'd be of the same opinion uh, as Mossy. I haven't seen it in a good while now, but it, it wasn't as good as I remembered it. Yeah, same as that. Like, there, there's obviously some, some good things in it, but like, like a lot of Adam Sandler stuff, it, it fails as much as it, it hits as many wides at those points. Yeah, I don't think I'd watch it again if it was on TV, to be honest with you. I'd flick through it. Maybe just old age and maturity has finally caught up with you, gentlemen. I, I wouldn't go that far now. I wouldn't say that either. <laughs> Look, Stuart McGavin in it was class. Yeah, um, yeah, really good character. I suppose Happy started off as a hockey player, and it's the, the only thing he ever wanted to be was a hockey player. Uh, and it didn't, it wasn't really working out for him. No, he was a bit of a temper on him, didn't he? That was his claim to fame, wasn't it? He, he had two records as a hockey player. One was, or at junior hockey, and one was the, the most time spent in a penalty box. And he was the only guy to ever take off his skate and try to stab someone. <laughs> it's uh, a bit extreme now. I think extreme. the temper, yeah, he was an extreme case, all right. What would you do as a coach there now, just in my head, with a player who does have a very hot temper? I said underage level. Yeah, Mossy. So looking at it from a perspective of like a, a lot of teams have really talented people who you want to try and cultivate and get the best out of. Like look at Paul Galvin and Kerry, right? He's a prime example of a fella who does wild things all the time, but because his talents are, are so strong, and if you harness it in the right in the right manner, like the year he got Player of the Year, he can be. He can be a key component to the team. Like I remember, I remember Liam Morgan. Uh, I was at a talk in by well, Liam Morgan in Clontarf GA a uh, long time ago now. But he talked about the bio and dealing with the bio on the team. And I don't think it's a case that the bio who can be the most critical factor. Dennis Rodman again. Dennis Rodman in in the, the last dance. You need to be able to deal with them fellas if you want to get the the best out of them. So how do you harness him and make sure that his madness isn't affecting other people on the team? So you're really suggesting you really have to get to know them and get to know the individual first, don't you? And coach them as an individual rather than in the team? Yeah, like you need that bit of madness, like that that person who can win you the game but equally could lose you the game. But you're, by you working with him and, and, and coaching him at the appropriate level, you're going to get more of the winning games out of him than the flashpoints where you lose the games. Like, do you think the Kerry Manders over the last, well, 
decade, the decade we'll say Paul Galvin played, do you think they'd forgo him? No, because he did offer and, and, and win the all Ireland, you know? The benefits outweigh the negativity. Mm. Same with all teams, like Dublin have a few of them players there. Um, nearly all teams have a hothead, but if they're contributing to the team positively, you'd, you'd accept it, wouldn't you? Like you'd, you'd actually see sometimes as well, uh, if you're like in tune with, with local club championship and fellas that would play inter-county and would, would be, as you said, Paul, they kind of harness that energy. But at club level, they mightn't be, I suppose they mightn't have the, the skilled people working with the group. And you might see a person who might get numerous red cards with their club team. And in yet with the inter-county, they're very disciplined. They're a little bit more um, loose at the count at the club, aren't they? Yeah, like as I said, whether it's just uh, that it's not in the public, it's not in the national eye or whatnot. But you, you know, you'd, we'd all, you'd always see. I'm sure we can all think of players within our own counties that at club level would be renowned for the likelihood of getting a red card. But with the county, they never get a red card. Is that because there might be more pressure on them with the club? Like it's more expected of them to perform. It could be. Like I, I, I'm just trying to think of other things. Like it maybe, maybe with the club, if they're like I said, this person might might lash out if they're losing a match when things are going against them and they don't have that kind of, uh, maybe it's a responsibility. I, I don't know, maybe it's a perceived responsibility to the collective that isn't as strong in a club as it might be with a county team or something like that. Because like most county players would spend probably five, six of their time training and playing in the year with the county team. And the club team is more of a, maybe it's less less pressure. Less, I, I don't know. Um, maybe it's just less important to them. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far now. I'd say sometimes there's when you're you expect more out of your county player when they're back with the club, and if they're not performing, mm. they probably get frustrated. And I'm sure they hear comments from the sideline from their own supporters, and oh, sure, he's county, he's getting too big for his boots, or for, for some, for example, the pressure on them there is a lot on them to be honest and it, it could be the other side of it could be that like they, they get less per, less. I suppose when they're playing club they're targeted they, that, yeah. that if, if this player player A is playing the match the opposition are going out to stop him as much as we stop him we stop the team whereas playing county he's probably meeting someone of similar quality and ability and they're trying to excel on the pitch as well whereas you might get that pure man marker at club level that might yeah. just try to agitate someone and get under the skin for the whole game but um no, it's interesting. Right. Right. I suppose the first coach um we come across in, in the film was the, the hockey coach at the trials. And I thought his his standout his standout comment was um when Happy was like, Coach coach did you did I not make the team? And he was like, No, better luck next year. Ha <laughs> 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 laughing at him. But obviously the like, Happy just had a had a, a sort of a delusion of his own ability. Which which would uh, like it'd be something that with a lot of players, it's the kind of I'm better than what I am kind of loses as they get older. You know, there'd be a common train of thought out there that kids at four, five, and six think they can do anything. They think they can play for Cork, play for Manchester United, whoever. But as they get older, they realise their own abilities and they kind of fall fall in with with in line with what they're actually capable of. But Happy obviously didn't. He wasn't aware of his own abilities to to an extent. As a hockey player. But do you think that he continued to play and keep trying out because he didn't recognise that? Like, that's a good thing. That just shows how much he loves the game, that he just wanted to keep going. And yeah. one of the great things about the GA is there is that level within each club that you can play that possibly wouldn't be there in, in rugby or, or, or some other sports, particularly in America, like a, a recreational 
competing leagues aren't as wide scale as they are in Ireland, you know, and I think nationally we're quite lucky that that's the situation. Yeah, and like there is a level for, for everybody within most clubs. As I know we like there, there are some clubs that, that might only have one team and the, I suppose the needs of the player mightn't be catered for, for that by that team. But there is within the GA, like you, you will have an avenue nearly for, for every type of player as they get older um, into adulthood. So, but it was it was just interesting the way that he was like I know when he was in the batting cage the following day he was his opinion was it's 364 days to tryouts and that's that's what he was thinking about getting back for next year and trying again. So I suppose there was a love for the game and I suppose a love to to be the best he could be within it. Yes, Happy Gilmore, the golfer, kind of came out when his grandma was losing her home and the movers found a, an old set of golf clubs and they had a little bet out the front. No, first of all, it was completely reckless going out in the, the middle of the street, hitting golf balls through a, a bunch of houses. Um, I don't know if you've any done that before or not. No, I don't think any social behaviour now. Who do you think we are? Do you remember in Philly McMahon's book when he's on about getting the golf clubs and hitting them into the poshies? Yeah. Hitting, hitting them down towards uh, Glasnevin. Glasnevin. The well-to-do club down in Glasnevin, yeah. First of all, he hits the... Did he hit the guy? Hit the husband the husband first? That was on the front porch? Yeah. And then they, they upped the bet and they doubled down. And I think I think the second time or the third time then, he, he actually hit the wife who was looking out the window at him, shaking her <laughs> fist. So uh, I suppose there was a a quick look into to his potential future as a, as a golfer in that incident. Like, so... He had a natural ability to hit the ball. Yeah, yeah, and that was evident in the ice hockey, and then he transferred that to the golf. Yeah, that that would be similar to to a lot of hurlers as well that are able to, we'll say, strike the ball very well in golf because of the grip. But then you aren't as adept around the green and the more finesse stuff, you know. Good hand-eye coordination and things like that. Yeah, I think I think rotational ability or mobility and stuff like that because, like, I know there was whatever level of incompetent golf that, that I used to play. There was a there was a girl who would have played camogie and she would have played with us. Uh, she would play camogie and she would play golf and like she could out hit most of the women. And you know it was kind of just because of the background of playing camogie and that that rotation of the trunk and swinging of the the shoulders, which I suppose transferred over to it, which would have been similar with, with happy to to an extent. Um, but then he he started seeing a way of trying to buy grandma's house back by going down to the driving range and hustling hustling normal fellas like 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 you and me. And that's where Chubbs arrived on the scene. So I thought Chubbs um, his first bit of coaching was fairly I don't know how could you what could you say about him when he was coaching the lady? What was he was it a disinterest? Yes, he wasn't too bothered about it when when he was with the woman. He was. That's great. Very good. Bend those knees. Remember, it's all in the hips. <laughs> and he just kept repeating that. So eventually seen Happy and dating the ball for golf ball out of the driving range. And I suppose he, he started taught himself, this is something I can uh, I can get involved with. What did you think of their first get-together and meeting? It was good from the perspective of the coach seeing, seeing the, the ability that Happy had. And that Happy just had no interest until money was mentioned. Like, had zero interest in playing golf for the love of golf. He was just motivated by money from the very start, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Was just, it wasn't for the love of the game or anything like that. No, he, he had little little interest in it except to make money. And it was the mention of the big bucks is what, what made him, I suppose, stop and turn around and chat to Chubbs. And that brought us to the first competition, which was to get his qualifying card for the, for the Tour Championship. 
and Chubbs, Chubbs and Fairness kind of guided him around the course as best as possible. Again, reiterated the it's all in the hips. When he was putting, he was uh, just tapping in, just tapping in. It was uh, another another classic from... He was getting to vis- visualise the putt as well, wasn't he? He was breaking it down for him, trying to imagine. I think it's a coach does, in certain situations, have to try to get their free taker, for example, to visualise what they're going to do, get into that routine. What age group would you start coaching that at, lads? There was a few really good bits around there. Like we, we we mentioned it before about talking about using phrases to to get kids to remember something, um, or or using or using images as I said, like just that tap 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 a route and send it to a happy place, go home ball and like him talking to the ball and that sort of stuff, you know. That Lines was are packed. Yeah. Yeah. Tap it in. Um, tap 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 a route. Yeah. And there was an element there though as well of. Chubbs was over coaching. Like Happy says, you're uh, when when he was doing all the talking around the putting party, he goes, You're confusing me. Let me put the ball in the hole. You know, when he was giving instructions A, B, C, and D, you know. Too much information. Like I, I, I do think often at times coaches do over coach to I suppose I, I wouldn't say it's it's always an ego thing, but just to be given 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 their their money's worth, you know. A lot of coaches want to be heard, don't they? If, like, say, if you're in a group and you've, you're a coach, you're a manager, you have a couple of selectors, like, you have to be able to draw the fine line and say, you're doing the talking. That's it. You don't want the player to hear from four people, for example, because it's too much information coming on board. And then you're thinking, who am I listening to? Or who's in charge? Or what's happening here? Sometimes less is more. Like, how many key parts of information should you be given to say an under 13 team at halftime two I, I, I would imagine there's like there's an awful lot of uh, research out there around um, people's ability to retain information during performance or immediately before or immediately after performance you know around that competition isn't the time often to be giving instructions a personal viewpoint of mine is the coach should have minimal impact in terms of giving instructions on match day because all their work is, is is primarily done in advance of the match and it's done on the training ground and in, in meetings in advance of the day that they don't need to be hyper and, 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 and continuously involved in the game on the on the day, you know? But that's at a higher level, Paul, isn't it? It's like a higher age group. When you're still talking under 12s and 13s in terms of you wouldn't have had these team meetings and stuff like that. So when you're giving information, you said you're two key pieces, and you might talk to players individually. Would that be how you go around it a little bit, maybe? Do you know what I would actually say? It's it, it's more important at under twelve level that you have all the stuff done in advance of the match in the train session, because if you're at an under eight goal games match and you show at a kid <laughs> do something right, say hand passing, they'd nearly turn around to you, look at you. Oh, you want me to hand pass it? And then they turn around, and now the, the opportunity to give the hand pass is done. It's gone. Eh? I I genuinely think coaches shouting in 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 juvenile games are purely doing it for themselves. They have no like that has such a detrimental effect on the kids because they can't comprehend it, and all it's doing is slowing down their decision making process. It's the silent sidelines that have been brought in in yeah, some of that's Facebook. Me. Yeah, yeah. 
does it does it go back to just the perception of the coach feels people here think I'm the coach I must be seen and like the same way you'd have coaches that would be very organized with cones and whatnot for training sessions and they'd be completely set up and sometimes is it a perception for the other people for the parents and the other grown-ups on the sideline as opposed to what's actually beneficial because you know like you'd hear the, the organized chaos and Eamon O'Shea would be you know be he talk about not using cones and training session and it just rolls from place to place. Just no, you couldn't say there's a set structure to it, but he yeah. knows the benefit out of it. And he doesn't care if people think it looks organized or not. But with young, with young coach, with novice coaches, let's call them coaches who are working with under eights, nines, tens, might be their first time. Like, is there, I suppose, is there a perception that they feel they have to be seen to be doing something? Because they're unaware that yeah, let them play and let them structure and look, it'll be a bit chaotic and we'll learn from it and we'll, we'll, we'll address it at halftime, that one or two things. Like, is it a case that they don't see that as being coaching? I, I definitely think there is an element of that, you know, and like a, a lot of this stuff around coaching, people only know, we'll say, one way and they don't, we'll say, think about the merits of another way of doing things until it's expressly told to them, you know? I love Paddy Butler's expression about you should only be given 30 seconds of information and 20 seconds of that is vomit. Like they're not interested a lot of the time. No, and I think we've all seen the, the picture of the, the coach with a bunch of kids in front of him and he's going, right, we're going to do this and we're going to play this. We're gonna, you're going to go there and we're going to run there. And if it all goes well, we'll play the game. And that's what the coach says. And the picture beside it is blah, 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 blah. Game. game. That's what the kids hear. And, yeah. and I suppose it is, it is important. Like you said, Paddy Butler says 30 seconds. I know what I'd be telling coaches myself is that three seconds for every age, for every year, they're, they're old. So after six years of age, 18 seconds maximum and get over there. Because those kids, man, they're counting birds in the, in the sky if they're standing around for too long, you know. They just have a mind that is trying to explore and challenge and get out there and see things and do things and doesn't want to be listening to a parent or a grown-up telling them what they should and shouldn't be doing. Just going back there, we're talking about warm-ups. I remember a coach, a senior coach, um, he was taking his warm-up before a match and he brought his warm-up to have it right in front of the stand in Parnell Park where he could be heard roaring and shouting telling people what to it was the most egotistical thing I think I've ever seen in a warm-up ever it was just scandalous did they win the match? no they did not <laughs> yeah well you see if they won the match he'd be thinking it was all justified and stuff from from Chubb's perspective then um, like Chubb's Chubb's kind of had an idea of what the player needed uh, like I know we spoke about what, what the coach thinks they need but Chubbs I suppose had a knowledge of the sport and he wanted to work with he wanted to work with, with Happy for, for a couple of months six months and try to get him up to scratch that he knew that the raw talent was there but he just needed to finesse it and that's what he wanted but Happy didn't have the time Happy Happy was urgent he had 28 days before for closure um, so he needed to get making money quick and he couldn't be he couldn't sit back for that so Happy took himself onto the onto the pro tour and I suppose he's, he's I think it was his playing partner the first day was uh, all about harnessing the good energy and block out the bad so it, it probably helped Happy a tiny bit but it, it probably didn't help him in, in other ways but it was, suppose it was a steadying, inf- a steadying influence for him while he was there but it was uh, I suppose he was out into the big bad world and, and he came he came last in his first day out because I suppose the, like I suppose that can show you where the benefit of a coach could be you know just that for, for golf, for such a game like golf now, which would be fairly technical as regards course management, that would be something they talk about. 
I me going out to a course versus Project County going out to a course see two completely different things. Um, because he's he's been coached and he knows what he's looking for and stuff like that. But I suppose that Happy was happy happy to go on his own little way and try to get his his couple of thousand each week. So he got caught for the ninth green at nine o'clock on the first the first night, I think. Yeah. Or was before the first night. And but I suppose he what he did was was I suppose for sports marketing was what they're what they're looking for. He brought a bit of a crowd, different engaged a different audience and he he got the game I suppose he got a popular to to a new clientele for for golf which means more ticket revenue more money more sponsors etc so he came from that angle so eventually he he knew he needed a bit of help and he went back to Chubbs so he made him grovel and Chubbs like from that Chubbs Chubbs takes I suppose he, he goes back to basics and he knows like I suppose the the saying in golf is is drive for show and putt for dough. And he knew that the putting game needed to improve because he could drive. He could drive to 400 yards. That was the that was the easy part for Happy, but putting the ball into the hole at the end of it was important. So he went back to basics. And basics, I'm sure we've all done it, went and played crazy golf somewhere. Now, the crazy golf course they had was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, and, and it's actually a really good idea. Because um, I suppose... Look, he's 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 working at the area of the game that he is particularly weak, and um, even though he does say it's embarrassing or whatever, from my perspective, like I don't know how we'll say at this stage, Happy hasn't, uh, sorry, Chubbs hasn't called him to change his grip. Like it's a scandalous grip he has. Yeah, uh, hockey grip. Uh, I don't know about, was he left over right and with a big massive gap? Massive gap, yeah. But like in golf now, you'd have the broom handle the putters would be. Something similar, except not as high up. Well, it'd be more, they'd be higher up than what Happy is, but... I, I wouldn't be an authority on this now at all, but then broom handle ones are outlawed now as well. But they're yeah, really, they're, yeah, the they're reason... They're outlawed, they're outlawed if they're anchored, they're yeah. Anchored, yeah. Yeah, and like it, it, the reason that grip is, like, some people do have the bigger grip there, is so yes. that they get the anchor and they can get way more stability on the strike. But like, like from, like, the grip... The grip, like, obviously, he's trying to get his grip. Well, he didn't try to change his grip. But, like, from a hurling perspective, it is something that would come up an awful lot when the, when the kids are starting out playing hurling that, like, hurling coaches would tell, would try to get them to hold the hurley correctly. And I suppose hurling in comparison to every other sport in the world, so, like, you have hockey, I'm thinking cricket, baseball, golf, they all hold your, let's say, for a right-hander, left over right. But for hurling, it's right over left. And, like, the only difference between hurling and all those sports is that there's... It's uh, the ball is in a steady position, or let's say in hockey um, or baseball, you're in a steady position yourself a lot of the time when you're when you're striking and stuff like that. But hurling, because of the dynamics when there's people tackling, ball moving, we do it the other way. Why? Like as as well with a number of them other sports you mentioned, and um, now it's not every sport, obviously, because we say tennis and hockey, you do you can hit with both sides of the stick, but you are hit with both sides of the of the hurl in hurling. Some some people, and I'd actually be one of them, would have a wrong grip. Now I I changed when in in my latter years thanks to a, a advice from a, a really good coach, and um, but it wasn't something that was picked up when I was a juvenile and actively looked to be to be changed. And we'll say being cack handed, so having left over right when you go to strike the ball in hurling 
if you're if you're right-handed while you might initially get a little bit of joy out of it um you you are slower at completing completing some of the other skills as as, as it goes on did know. the change make you a better player Paul? N- not really from the perspective of like it was it was later enough that that it changed you were just doing it more because of ridicule basically was it yeah <laughs> but it was also because you were coaching kids and when you're coaching, I suppose you're coaching a lot of elite underage players that like, if you're trying to show them something, I suppose it's important that you're able to show them correctly, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, I, I wouldn't even t- talk about it from a coach and elite underage kids. I think it's more important from coaching nursery level or under eights or under tens or whatever. They're seeing adequate practice and, and, and good practice. And like, I, I think as well now, my son is left-handed, okay, and, and he is left-handed. So when I'm out and I'm doing a small bit of hurling with him and like on ground hurling or whatever, I would strike the ball left-handed on top for him. And like we'll say a, a mixture of mirroring, mirroring it and doing it alongside him. Um, so he is doing it. I was just going to say, funny enough, we were playing a hurling match out the back garden today, the four of us. Seth and the three children and uh, Isabella had swapped her hands and I said put your right hand on top and she goes which is my right hand so I said the hand you hit your brother with and she caught it straight away <laughs> well, I, I give you a better one right uh, I'd say it's 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 the guts of a decade ago now it was the nursery in St. Bridges VA Club there in, in Castle Blanchardstown and there was an American child at the nursery just doing it for the first time. So I says, yeah, use the hand you write with. And he goes, you say the hand I write with or I wipe with? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. But, but it was good. But, and, and, and we'll say a, a lot of the problems with that incorrect grip and hurling comes down from, comes initially from the hurl that the person's too big. Yeah, so if you give a small light hurl where people can get mastery one-handed, that's the preference situation to be in. So, like, and, like, I I know people always want bigger and they want better, but we'll say to to ensure proper technique in hurling, it certainly is smaller and lighter the better. Yeah, like I know when when we're inside in primary schools coaching with juniors and seniors, we use the hurlogs, the 18 or 20 inch, and they're basically just long enough for one hand, and they will put the dominant hand on top. But look, I'd say the amount of kids that start off the opposite, like I know that all my family started off left over right until we moved to Killa, and the coach down in Killa was conscious of it, and he changed us over. We also had the hurling turned in the wrong way. He changed that over within three months of us arriving in Killa playing hurling. He was after correcting us. I seen a picture of the four V. Uh, your father was playing a match in the four V there at your funny fringes, and the hurls are way too big feet. That could have been a reason for it. No, I'd well, I'd say the oldest brother. No, he's hardly was probably thirty seven because he was more of a footballer. But the rest of us, no, the rest of us are hardly are grand. So don't be, uh, don't be criticizing our hurlies. Go back yeah. and have a look at it. No, we were, uh, they were, they were grand. But yeah, look, it's very, very important. I like, I would say the same thing I say to nursery coaches all the time, is, and what I mean by under seven stone, if you can do one thing in regards hurling, um, and teaching the kid before they leave the nursery to go to under eight, is have the correct grip, the correct hand on top of the hurley, and get to having them used to that. Because if they can do that, 
they can master everything else as they go on over the coming years. But if they don't have that, skills start getting harder as they get into sort of 11, 12, 13. They'll, they'll just, it'll be a bit harder and a bit slower in comparison to everything. And I think one of the other things, Paul, you might, I don't know how you, you might be able to clarify now, but I, I always felt that kids that did that, that held a hurley like that, the right side, striking from the right side was, was grand, but striking from the left side was actually weak um, in comparison. Yeah, it, it would definitely be the case. And you probably, you can be potentially better initially using that grip. Yeah, it's as you, you you develop up. So we'll say if you're if you're going from a situation of right-handed strike in the ground, left-handed strike in the ground, right-handed strike from the air, left-handed strike from the air, you'll you'll be possibly people people could be excellent at the first stage, but by the stage they get up to the fourth, they could be very very limited. Yeah, yeah, and you would see it in ground hurling um, and like indoor hurling leagues and stuff where kids would get the larger hurlies and they'd have the wrong grip. But they get away with it there because that's the basic, that's the level one you're talking about. But I suppose for, for happy level one with frame was was trying to put the ball and uh, at the crazy golf and like Chubbs had to say to him, you don't play with raw emotion, you can't put angry. You must clear your mind of everything else and stay focused. Get your own happy place. But his happy place, his happy place was something I suppose mightn't be uh, exactly everybody else's happy place, but that was his place. And it helped him Chubb's able to give him that bit of advice, was able to kind of focus his mind on what he was trying to do. Um, and that, I suppose it led to eventually getting the, the putt on the really awkward hole after the the clown had spat out his ball plenty of times. I thought it was actually great when he went to go to the, the happy place then in, in, in the final round and, and Shooter had, had dominated it there. I thought that was actually one of the, my favourite scenes in it, uh, just to carry on a Shooter in it. Like he had, Shooter was in the majority of good scenes in the film, like even even in the, say, the bar afterwards, like, and he's, he's going, uh, stay out my way or you'll pay. And then it gets into a continuous rhyme of A words for the next like 20 seconds and it's just really funny. And like it was even pieces of shit like you for breakfast like that. I don't know if that was where that initially came from. Mm. I remember for for years people would would rhyme that that off. It was good. But like I suppose just from that Paul then like when 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 Shooter got into his happy place like that is something that happens like where a player where you, you kind of want players in those situations to be able to concentrate in their own game. But Shooter was obviously in his head and he was after like you know you you'd, you'd often hear about trying to get in the opponent's head. Um like Shooter obviously had got into his head at that stage. Like is there what well, what can a player do in those situations? Is it a case? Is there a reset button or something from the psychological view, or or like is there something like that? You have to be able to just focus on your own game. The elite players do. It same happened actually later in the film where shooters start to worry about Happy's game and it threw him off completely. Mm. Yeah. Um, if you get too worried about what is my opponent doing, what are the other team doing for training up the road? And you're worrying about them more so worrying about yourself you're starting from behind the cue ball basically aren't you yeah i suppose you are as well like it is important that you're you're able to i suppose concentrate control the controllables i suppose that's the most one of the more overused terms of the last few years but it is important and like just just when he had made the giant strides with with chubbs um and chubbs chubbs gifted him the hockey stick putter uh the, i suppose it, and it was important that he got equipment that suited his skill set 
that he was able to use. No, I don't know how legal. I don't actually don't think it's anywhere legal in golf. But um, do you know yeah. what I, I think? <laughs> not, I went down that film was legal in golf. Now, Colm. How how long are we into this show? And now about the the hockey putter, are you bringing up legalities in terms of golf? Like that's that should have been a disclaimer at the start of the episode. <laughs> uh, look, I think I I think the, there was a few other things that that might have got away with, and they may have put in rules subsequently. But yeah, I'd say the hockey put the hockey stick putter mightn't have uh, mightn't be be legit. Like I suppose, and it goes back to what you're saying about hurley. Like the, the equipment needs to fit the person that you're not getting a hurley that's too big for them, and they won't be able to use it correctly. And for happy getting a stick that was getting a hockey or a putter that suited his skill set and he was comfortable with it was important. Like no, after he received that, poor old poor old Chubbs fell to his fell to his death when he was. Well, you could say happy killed him. Ah, you see, that's an old narrative now that's out there. A shooter is put out there. There's substance to it. He was an accomplice to his death. But he was there. I, I I would have been investigating that now. But when Shooter talked about playing the the, the tournament in memory of, of uh, Trump, that was a classic. <laughs> that was that was like a WWE uh, lion from Jericho or whoever, like, just to just to wind the crowd up, like yeah. perfect heel <laughs> tournament. And he was he was well able to do it as well, but like in the it, when they did get into that round, you know, Happy was saying when he was struggling, Grandma wants me to be happy. You know that that's what he was he was going back to because um, that was that was his motivation. I suppose at the end of the day was was getting Grandma. And I think I think the last the last input Chubbs had was Happy actually when he was making the last shot, he says to himself, he says, Chubbs, I know you're going to help me with this one. Uh, no, I don't know. Was there divine intervention from Chubbs to get the ball all the way up and down the railings and over the car and back and finally into the hole? But I suppose for Happy, that's where he went to. He went to call, recall. I suppose the the positive things he'd done with Chubbs and I suppose the the pat he put him on as as a coach. You know that in his final moments, that's what he was. Well, in the, in the biggest moments, it was Chubbs, his coach, is who he was thinking of. Just remember your mentor. Don't you don't know like the influence any coach has on somebody throughout their playing career that that small bit of advice that you give them might be the, something they hold on to for the rest of their career yeah that's very true and like you'd always talk you like every every player that you'd see do a pro like I know they don't ask this question pro player profile they do they ask who was the most influential in your life and it was usually the parents um, usually the mother or father mm-hmm. out in the garden and stuff like that but like for, for happy because this sport was completely unique and obviously he hadn't played that with his father like Chubbs was his his influence to, to get it done, you know. So, what was uh, what was your favorite part of the film, lads? There's a few good bits, but anything with Ben Stiller or Shooter was was excellent. Like ben, I, ben I really, I really enjoyed the fight with Bob Barker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was just that was just brilliant comedy. I, I actually, I actually, I actually liked like the opening sort of bit as well, where it gave the background to him to you know like. Shooting, shooting the nail gun against and Mr. Larson's head, and uh, yeah, from this job to that job. But, but Ben Stiller was excellent. Ben, yeah, Ben Stiller was another excellent character. And, like, you know, he was like, You will go to sleep, or I will put you to sleep, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And you had the poor old granny jumping on the windscreen of the car trying to get out of the place. Like, um, it, it was, you know, there was a lot of good characters in it. In fairness, it was like, I think, I think it was an excellent film. I think it was probably one of Adam Sandler's best ones, but look, it's it was. Yeah, yeah it, it, I know. It, it was one of his best ones, but again, that's not saying a whole lot. Yeah. Big Daddy was a good film. It was all right. 
right. I, t- I still, yeah, I still nearly go back to Happy as as his best character. And uh, Wedding Singer was good. Yeah, the Wedding Singer was good actually. Yeah, that was a good film as well. So, um, right. So, right, Paul. Question number one: What sandwich shop does Happy like best? Massey. Subway was throughout the show was uh, advertised, so I presume it's Subway. Correct, Massey. One nil to the Mass man. Question number two, Massey. What material is Chubb's hand made from? It's plastic that shouldn't break, but it broke. Go plastic. Paul, do you want to counter? I'm going to say, I don't know. I'm going to go aluminium. No, neither if you got rated. Wood. It's actually made of wood. Right, question number three. Who was Chubbs supposed to be the next? So they thought, they said I was going to be the next. What golfer? I'm, I'm really struggling this week. Um, I'm going to say Arnold Palmer. Massey, would you like to counter? I would have said Arnold Palmer as well. So I would say... No, I would say Arnold Palmer. I would say one. Okay. Point each, you're both correct. It is Iron Palmer. Question number four. Massey, what song was played at the ice rink when he took the lady for a date? It's in one of the top five Lion Richie songs of all time. What's the song? Do you not know? I know. Well, I'm it's asking my, you, Mike. My Endless Love. Paul, do you want to counter? No, it is that, yeah. Correct. Three, two. Last question. What was Mr. Larson's full-time job? He was the foreman on the site. Okay, Massey, do you want to counter? Yeah, he was the foreman on the site. Ah, uh, do you know what? Uh, that's, yeah. a cop out. <laughs> that's a cop-out, do you know what? I should nearly give you a bonus point for that, Paul. But uh, correct, he was a construction foreman. So, Massey, congratulations. You have got the W. Well done. Right. What Thanks, Colin. Colin, I'm actually disappointed there wasn't one question you asked. What? Um, which one? What hat did Happy wear and jersey did Happy wear a considerable amount of times in the film? Was it the Bruins, no? It was the Bruins, yeah. And what hat? No, it was a hat. He, 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 was, he was a Bruins hat. It was a Bruins hat, yeah. Right, go on. What are you giving Chubbs out of, out of five? Massey, you're first up this week. Uh, what two, two, two and a half okay. for the amount of time he was in it? Okay, POB. He's get, he's getting a two, and the reason he's getting half of that is because his he's he's involved in the the intro to the podcast. Okay, that's fair enough. I'm I'm going to give him uh, his coaching of happy. I'm going to give him a three point five. I thought. He he knew exactly what was needed with Happy. He knew his uh, his weaknesses and what he needed to improve on. And I think with with every opportunity he could to improve him, he he did it. So I I think if he had more input and he didn't fall to his death at uh, such an early stage, I think he would have been um, could have been very influential in Happy's future career to, towards greatness. So that gives us a score of two point six seven. So we'll get him onto the leaderboard. No, it'll be interesting to see where Carl Weathers comes in again in Rocky yeah. 3, is it? Yeah. It's Rocky 2. Rocky 3. Carl Rocky Weathers 3. Yeah. yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if he can top that in, in Rocky 3. 
So that's it for today. Thanks very much, Paul and Massey. Thank you, Colm. No bother. Thanks for joining us today. Please leave a review on your favorite platform. And if you enjoyed it, please tell a friend. You may also want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Roy Orbison Tattoo. And we appreciate any likes, retweets and comments. Next week, we will be watching Semi Pro. And we will have the show available first thing Tuesday morning, as always. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>